Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and also the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. And we come in the studio every couple of weeks to meet some people from our community who are making differences in people's lives. And I'd like to welcome uh, to the studio today Justin Mori, who is the principal at Petaluma High School. Uh, just been here for a couple of months. And uh, welcome to the studio. Great. Thank you very much. Yes. How long have you been? You started when? Uh, Petaluma High. I started yeah. July 1st. Wow. July 1st. Wow. So you're new. Yes. Yes, I am. You don't know the names and faces of every student in the school? And no. I'm, I'm working on it, but not yet. <laughs> okay. How many students? Uh, we're right around 1,400 students. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of students to keep track of. That's a lot of students to keep track of. Well, great to have you here. And um, tell us, I, I know you're, you're from Petaluma, so give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll kind of move into the school stuff. Okay. Um, so I grew up here in Petaluma, as you said. Um, I went to, I'm a, uh, an alumni of Valley Vista and Petaluma Junior High, and then also Petaluma High. And then uh, following high school, I, I went down to UC Santa Barbara and uh, got my degree down there. And then I went further south and went to UC Irvine and got my teaching credentials down there. And I have teaching credentials. I have a single subject uh, teaching credential in social science. And uh, just because of the way my studies went at, at Santa Barbara, I actually also have a supplementary credential in science. So, And then um, my first teaching job, I was a middle school science teacher. And I did that for five years. At the same time, I started working on a master's and getting my administrative credential. I jumped directly into administration. It was kind of a pseudo-administrative position at a, a very large high school down in uh, Orange County, uh, almost 3,000 students, and I was the activities director, which, as I've said, has been has, was one of the most stressful and one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. Um, and at that point, I decided I really wanted to be back up here in the North Bay, and I moved back up here. Um, got a job as an assistant principal at Terra Linda High School, and I was there for six years and had a great time there. Um, then I decided to go back to my middle school days, and I became a middle school principal at San Jose Middle School in Novato, and I was there for six years. And then um, I just had an interest in working in Sonoma County, and uh, the position at the principalship at Sonoma Valley High School opened up, and I was there. And um, I was there for, unfortunately, only one year. Um, I had originally planned on being there longer, but then when the uh, opportunity arose in Petaluma, I just decided it was not an opportunity I could pass up at this point in my career. Well, welcome. Welcome to back to your home community. So Thank you. My, so what's it like being in the school where you are where you went to school and this community? I'm sure it has its pluses and minuses. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's defi- it was definitely very weird at first, uh, walking down hallways that, uh, that I walked down for four years. Uh, I've actually found myself gravitating towards the main building initially because the other buildings that have come in since I graduated, I had no experiences w- with them whatsoever, so I kept walking down the same hallways and realizing, oh, I need to get around to more of the school. Um, so that's that's been different just being on campus. Um, the school is different than when I went to school there, obviously. It's been 25 to 30 years. So um, there are definitely differences, so that 
isn't too strange. Um, but then just being in my community, now I interact with people who, I mean, I have students who um, I went to school with their parents. I have students who I know their, I knew them beforehand because I knew, I'm friends with their parents. Um, and then just connections through my family or other families. Like, oh, I know this person, I know this person. And the most recent thing that um, kind of uh, my wife really experienced us and or me working in the uh, town that I live in or that we live in um, when we were at a, a restaurant for dinner and the server brought out our food and the student said, hi, Mr. Mori. <laughs> so um, my wife just looked at me and said, did he just say hi, Mr. Mori? So that was yeah, her, her the, initial experience. You're in a smaller community yes. and that, that makes a difference. And there's actually a good part to that too and feeling oh, much at home and, yes, definitely. and all of that. Um, so... Uh, what have you found at Petaluma High coming in? You've been there a couple of months. I'm not going to try to ask you too many detailed questions because I assume you're still in the learning process about the school. But what's your characterization of the school and what's been your experience like in the first couple of months? Uh, my experience has been very positive. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, we've, we've, In terms of starting the year, there are always your, your bumps in terms of how things start. And, and some things work well and some things don't. But I've found um, as a staff, an incredibly supportive staff, um, some who are new, some who have been there for a long time, um, who really have a, a passion for the school and a passion for the students. Um, I think the students are amazing. Uh, they're, they're very kind. Um, they're supportive of each other. Um, they're, they have their own passions. Um, we have different programs on campus that they are passionate about. So um, I've been very impressed with the students so far. Yeah, I think you know, one of people are often worried about the teenagers and the high school students. So it's actually wonderful to hear you talking about them in positive terms because, unfortunately, we read too much and hear too much about the negative terms. Could you describe a couple of the programs that you consider to be exciting in the school that you know, really are making a difference for the students? Um, I mean, there are a number of different programs. I know uh, a lot of the work has been put into our Link Crew program, um, and that is connecting our incoming freshmen to the school. Mm-hmm. And you have generally juniors and seniors who are basically volunteering. And their work is to support our students coming into the school, getting them connected to the school, because the, the thought is and the, the experience is, um, and I've had this experience both with incoming sixth graders at a middle school and incoming ninth graders at a high school, the more connected they are to a school, the more positive their experience is and the more success they will have. So we have Link Crew leaders who really engage in that, and I would say our Link Crew program definitely is working to engage students, and they've got an activity tomorrow night. Ah, Okay. So, uh, actually, I know a couple of the uh, first-year students there who are really excited to be in the school and have found found it a little easier to get into it than they originally thought it might be. So, that's, that's great to hear. How has high school education changed over the years from your observations? Is it, uh, uh, you know... You know, I'm trying to stay away from the security issues for now because I will want to get to them. But uh, again, in the public eye, because of the news and everything, and particularly up in Santa Rosa this week, of course, uh, the security issues permeate uh, what the public hears about our education system. Whereas uh, I think the education part <laughs> is is ultimately what we're there for and what we want our students to experience. So I'm trying to have our audience here 
some of the educational pieces that are going on that are really either innovative, uh, making a difference, uh, dealing with the diverse population that we have here in Petaluma. So that's what I'm inviting you to kind of be a part of that. And so, and we'll, we'll come to the more difficult things in a, in a little bit later. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I would say some of the changes I've seen um, instructionally. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of times in schools, when I, when I think about my schooling experience, a lot of it was rote memorization, um, students sitting in rows, kind of the factory model that you hear about. Um, I'm not saying that I didn't have positive experiences and that we didn't do different things, um, but that's a lot of people's traditional things, the way people view things. And I think the work now is a lot more about developing problem solvers because our students, our world is changing so quickly and it's changed just so quickly in the time that, in my own experiences, that developing problem solvers, students who can come into a new situation, they don't know how, how to interact with it at first, but they have a background and experience in solving problems where they can say, okay, here's how I'm going to tackle this problem. And I would say that's what I see as um, one of the main shifts, um, that the, the tackling the unknown is, is uh, much more prevalent than it, than it used to be. And how, how has the digital world changed that educational process? And um, do this, are the students using textbooks? Are they carrying their books back, you know, the 25-pound backpacks? Or are they using online resources? What, what's happened with that on the high school level? So it, it's, a, it's a combination of both. We still have textbooks in some spaces. Um, we're currently working on um, some piloting of some uh, science uh, tech uh, um, curriculum right now. Um, there is a digital component. Um, our teachers make uh, pretty extensive use of Google Classroom, which I think is beneficial because then you have access to information all the time. Um, we Our, our um, technology access this year um, for years in uh, Petaluma had been iPads, and this year we shifted to Chromebooks at the secondary level. And I think that the, the Google Suite has been very beneficial for for us and able to push out information to students and make information available to students. Mm-hmm. Any pushback from parents around the digital stuff or is that are they happy that it's being integrated? Uh, as far as I know, I believe they're happy it's being integrated. This year we allowed also for students to opt to use their own device so they didn't have to use one of our Chromebooks. Uh, many did choose and uh, there were some, I mean, not at Petaluma High. Um, I, had to, I haven't experienced anything yet in terms of pushback. Initially, when we went um, with technology, uh, greater technology at the middle school, I did have a little bit of parent pushback because, and not a lot, not a lot at all, but it was a little bit that I remember where some parents were a little concerned about what their students might have access to on the internet. Yeah, and that's that's always a concern, of course, uh, for parents. So uh, the whole educational process in high school, how how are the students dealing with the political drama? <laughs> I guess that's a good word to call it, uh, the political drama of American life these days. Is it affecting their lives in any way? Do they Are they integrated into the issues? Uh, is it providing conflict? Is it, what, what's, it, what's happening in high school with that? So I would say for the most part, um, it is not providing conflict. I mean, uh, I think it's not unknown that we had an, an issue earlier this year where um, there was a flag posted, posting outside of our um, outside of one of our dances. Um, for the most part, on a day-to-day basis, 
I haven't seen the conflict. At the same time, we are absolutely aware that we have a an upcoming election, and that will probably um, create some some tension. And we're currently working on how are we, how to address that and maybe be proactive in in what we want to see and how we want to address things. Um, I think our students are plugged in. They are aware of what's going on. Um, I think in this day, this digital age, as we were just talking about, they have more connection and more information that they can access um, than ever before. And I think the most important thing that we need to do is continue to support our students, understanding that there are multiple points of view. There are different perspectives. Let's respect different perspectives, even if they're different from ours. But at the same time, let's also understand the um, mediums that are reporting this information. And uh, our, uh, when we first met, one of the subjects I brought up was that of student activism and with the comment that in my experience with the Community Relations Council, uh, Casa Grande has been the kind of a, the seat of student activism at the high school level uh, in our community. And you were too new at that point, and I know you're, it's only been two months since, uh, or a month and a half since we met, but any take on that? And, what student activism, you know, around climate issues, uh, uh, social justice issues, any anything happening in the school around that? Um, I would say there are pockets mm-hmm. that are, are reviewing these issues um, and are looking at them. I think as a staff, we've started looking at, at some of these things. I, I can't speak to what was what was working right, on before right. I was there. No, I understand. Um, but as a staff, we've been working on um, what success looks like in our school and um, how that impacts our students because those those pieces of activism, um, different students have different passions and we need to be aware that we represent as a school all of our students. And so um, in terms of the activism, um, I would say I've not seen uh, protests uh, daily Right, um, but but there, like for example, when there was the the climate uh, activity, um, I think it was a month ago, um, which I believe happened down at the library, um, we had some students who chose to participate. Um, we had some students who made some, um, like our our AP Environmental Science class wore a specific color that day, um, choosing to stay on campus, um, but uh, in order to be, but wearing a specific color in order to support. Um, those who are um, supportive of, uh, sorry, repeating support, um, but just to be supportive of those who have make, made that decision. Right. It's interesting. Our city council just uh, this week passed a, a, a law that uh, styrofoam is going to be banned in our restaurants, etc., in our community, these single-use containers. And as part of their very broad-based uh, climate issues, agenda and goals that they've established. And so I'd be interesting to see where the schools and the students become uh, part of that process uh, to help the community uh, give support to our need to make sure that our climate is is safer than it is quite right now. Yeah, and our our board has um, asked some recent questions about recycling programs and things like that, so we're, we're looking at those ourselves. In terms of the activism, it's as a school, it's balancing whether or not um, it's balancing. Okay, we're here to be to be providing you instruction, but also supporting them in when they do choose to um, participate in certain activities. And it's it's difficult because I can't recommend a student. I can't say to a student, "Oh yeah, it's okay if you leave campus." It's not. 
at the same time, I do want to support them that when they are feeling that there is a need to bring awareness to an issue. Yeah, that, that must be a kind of conflict, you know, because, uh, oh, there's a demonstration this week. Let's, let's get out of school and go down to the demonstration. Yeah, we can get out of school for that. And how you, how you measure whether a student is sincere about it and it's really that student's passion or not is, is a challenge. I, I, I do get that. So, um, so what's been happening in the high schools, of course, and we just had this incident in Sonoma County. I'm going to switch you over to the, the security issues, uh, etc. And what happened at Ridgeway pretty much shook up the, the community. Um, the high schools, the junior college were locked down up there for two and a half hours. Uh, a shooting took place on the campus. Thank God it was only between two people. That was bad enough, of course. Um, but so, what, what's uh, what's the student climate around security in the school? Are they conscious of it? And what's the what's it like for the staff? Um, I think students are conscious of it. Um, and I th and, and from a staff perspective, I mean, we come on campus every day to instruct our students and provide a safe environment. And so, um, I mean, we do drills and and activities like that. We we not just practice them, but we're revising our practice so that we can make sure that we are taking into account all situations. I mean, I just had a conversation with our school resource officer yesterday and one of our assistant principals discussing um, release points on campus and whether or not in an emergency situation should we identify another release point outside of campus somewhere, because you just don't know. Um, By release point, you mean where? Where so generally during like some sort of evacuation, you we will go to a specific place on campus, oh, okay. and then well, the release point is where we it's called a reunification place where we unify a student with their parents. Okay, um, and it's always it, in that kind of situation you try to take into a number of things because you have a parent's most prized object. Uh, not to call a child an object, but it is their right. most prized possession in their world. Right. Right. And we know that that's going to create some tension and some concern. And um, we just need to do the best way, best thing possible to make sure we get students back to their parents in those situations should they arise. Right. And I know the Santa Rosa schools apparently had a gathering point far away from the campus, which where the parents were supposed to go. But of course, Naturally, some of the parents went right to the campus. That's, that's where their kids are. That's where they wanted to be. So it's a very difficult kind of situation to monitor. And I was trying to imagine in reading about that, you know, one resource, uh, one police officer on the campus trying to figure this out before any help gets to him is really, uh, when you think about it, your campus is huge. There are 1,400 kids. One police officer, when an emergency comes up, is... Uh, not, it's pretty precarious at that point. No, yeah, you're correct. But at the same time, the police response would be, oh, there would I, be more I, officers I, arriving. And I think the idea is, I mean, you hope for the best plan for the worst. And, right. and so we revise our emergency plan every year. Mm -hmm. um, every, every school does that. It's part of their annual school plan process. And you continue to consider things, um, some basic things such as how doors lock, um, teachers, should they teachers leave their doors locked or not? Um, what do you do for those students who are in the hallways in the event of something like that? Um, so it's just different processes and looking at, I mean, we already did an evacuation drill earlier this year. We identified a, a, a choke point where too many classes were trying to enter a specific area. So we have to identify a new way to get students out there. Right. 
I'm not going to ask you the typical uh, question that reporters often ask. So what are you doing to provide security in your school? <laughs> you know, I always laugh at that question because, well, if I told you all the details, then I don't think it would be security at that point. So I'm not trying to get you to that point. But because I'm really wondering a lot about um, what, that, uh, what that issue has done to shape the mentality of the students and how it has affected them. And uh, are there students who are afraid to come to school or who are so conscious of it or worried about it that it affects their learning, it affects the, the whole climate? Any responses to that? Or So I think for most students, they don't see that as, uh, that as an everyday concern. Okay. Um, and I think it also depends on the, the school you're in, the environment, and the culture of the school. I think one of the strongest um, ways to combat those types of concerns is creating a strong school culture and a positive school environment uh, where students do, do feel safe at school. I mean, we have a, a pretty um, open campus in terms of access points, but students know our staff. Um, they know people who are there to support them. Um, not everybody has the greatest experience, and I completely understand that, and we continue to work on that to provide better experiences. Um, but there are those students who do be, who do have um, some concerns, and we need to continue to work with them and work with our student body so that they do feel safe on campus and know that should something happen, we're going to make sure that they are safe. And I suspect that if you were to look back at your high school experience 25 years ago, however long ago it was, and that part of the high school experience today is a whole different world. Oh, and absolutely. Having to worry about that, and it's, it's a sad part, actually. It's a sad part. But I do know that our local uh, uh, safety authorities, the police department, the fire department, etc., are very responsive and tuned in to the needs of our community, and uh, we're proud to have them uh, with us. Um, do you have any comments on what happened up in uh, Santa Rosa or... Uh, thoughts about how it uh, affects our, our school district and the, our students? Uh, whenever those things happen, we revisit how we're responding uh -huh. uh, because every situation is different and um, you never know how if something like that could happen at your school and you can't be naive enough to say, oh, that'll never happen here mm -hmm. because everybody says that to pretty much right, every school that's ever right. happened. So. Um, we just need to continue to be mindful of what's going on and continue to think about what are those things we haven't thought about. Yeah, that's that's the big question, right? <laughs> what are we not thinking about and right. trying to figure that part out? So, um, what's your what what would you like to see that your the school going over the next couple of years under your leadership? What kind of goals have you established uh, for yourself and for your staff? Um, well, I mean, we are actually in our accreditation year, so we've been working together and identifying some critical areas of need. Um, one of the things we talked about, which I mentioned earlier, is we're really talking about what success looks like at our school. Um, you have students who are going to be predictably successful just based on, on, on what you've seen from your school. But for those students who, are, are, who struggle and might not necessarily be successful, um, we want to identify those, those ways we can support them and help them to be more successful, and success is going to be different for everybody. Um, when I think of a success for a student, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be a straight-A student. Um, for me, success is getting to them, them to where they need to be. And whatever their, their college or career choice is after high school, I want them to 
have the option to do what it is they're interested in doing. So this this um, this whole testing program that's underway in the state of California, uh, and the report that actually just came out, I think it was in today's paper, of uh, you know what percentage of the students are performing at level, and that test is given uh, through eighth grade, but also in the high school. Or just so it's uh, I think it's third grade through eighth grade, and then it's eleventh uh, grade. And then eleventh grade. So I must say, seeing some of the percentages, it was uh, at least a, a, on that test uh, was pretty low. Like the state average was 53 point something percent for the English portion, and even lower, 30 in the 30s for the math portion of people who were uh, doing a, a two uh, on that on that scoring scale. Um, isn't that troublesome to see something like that? I think it's it's troublesome when you look at take the numbers just straight up the way they are. Okay. Um, at the same time, I think that there's been a lot of work done to um, adjust um, as our standards have adjusted, and a lot of times our standards have changed without um, any curricular support. Um, it's we're going to do this, so now think about how you're going to do it, but we're still doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, for example, the California science test is now given out and like I said we're piloting new science curriculum our teachers are developing curriculum and they don't need a textbook just to be able to give curriculum but it's a support and it's a help because there's a lot of work that goes into planning lessons and um, helping students to become proficient in a subject so what what should parents learn from their children's scores what should how should they evaluate them if they if they do see a low score there what's what's that about I think that the what I would say is look at their scores over time. Um, uh-huh. That is just a snapshot in time, and it also depends on the subject matter. Um, is that something where, they, where they've been learning that content just that year, or is that something that's happened over a period of time? Mm-hmm. Um, are their students seeing growth if the scores are perceived as low? Well, how did they do the year before? Um, I will say the challenge that we have at the high school is their last test where they were assessed in, in terms in that way is 8th grade, and then the next one is in 11th yeah, grade. So we have to identify how we're going to assess students in the meantime to make sure that we are continuing to develop them um, and so that they are showing progress and growth. Now, one educator pointed out that the test is only what that student does on one particular day. And you don't know where that student's coming from on that one particular day in his life, etc. Right. Well, actually, our time has gone pretty quickly here. It goes fast. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be in our studio. And uh, welcome to Petaluma High School. And we welcome you, Justin Mori, to our community. Straight back here. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We're in our studios here with our second guest, Chuck Fernandez, who is the executive director of COTS. Uh, uh, the Committee on the Shelterless, our award-winning and renowned uh, program in our community, nonprofit that helps, tries to help us struggle with uh, some of the issues around homelessness and poverty within our community. Let's see, it's been a year already since you've been there? It's been a year. Wow. <laughs> wow. I was just thinking about that because you spoke at the last uh, Cots Breakfast. I did. And I just got the note yesterday for the uh, upcoming one. And so, wow, it's been a year already. It, time flies very quickly. It does fly, fly quickly. What's, so what's this year been like for you? It's been a good year. Um, I had experience with serving the homeless in a previous job. Yeah, what were you doing? I started my social service career with Catholic Charities. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember back in October of 2009, they offered me a position in a shelter, being the shelter manager. And I remember telling my father, Dad, I've got this job. And he said, well, what are you going to do? He says, well, I'm going to work in a homeless shelter. And he looked at me and he said, with all of your education, you're going to work in a homeless shelter. And I said, yeah. Um, and it's been a great experience. I worked at charities for about five years. I transferred to another charities in Oakland where we didn't do homeless services. And I had the opportunity to come back to Sonoma County at the Mary Isaac Center and uh, work with those experiencing homelessness. And it's been great. Yeah. Well, that's, well, we're going to go learn more about what, sure. that, what the great parts of that. When I was in uh, Berkeley, we worked. Uh, I was at Jewish Family and Children's Services, and we worked with Catholic Charities in Oakland. And uh, actually, it was a great experience we had with them over the years. So I have good memories of, uh, <laughs> of that relationship. I have good memories of that relationship. 
So uh, my observation is that uh, Katz has evolved uh, over the years. I've been in this community for 14 years now, and uh, I've seen a number of changes, uh, not just staffing-wise, but also programmatic and service-wise. So maybe you can kind of bring us up to date on where where Katz is these days and what's what's going on programmatically. Yeah, programmatically, <clears throat> I think a couple of years ago, or for the longest time, Katz is really known for the programs and services that they offered. It was really around housing readiness. Let's get people ready to get into a home. Let's provide them with services such as rent right, work right, compassionate listening, that sort of thing. And then a couple years ago, out comes this thing called Housing First, where let's get people first in a home, and then we provide services for all other challenges that they're having. I think in the process, COTS got rid of all of those programs that made them who they are today. Rent right, work right, compassionate living, NAAA, all of that went out the door uh, because I don't think they really knew what Housing First was. And so as part of our evolution, what we're doing now is we're bringing that back because that really truly was what made COTS great and also helped the clients. Um, so we're taking the best of housing readiness and we're taking the best of housing first and we're blending them together with the focus on the clients. So that's part of our evolution. And you still have housing at your building at the Mary Isaac Center too, yes? We do. We have about 100 shelter beds. Uh -huh. And on the second floor, we have some permanent supportive housing units, about 11 of them. Hmm. And so we still have all of that. Uh, but the focus is really on how do we help our clients move forward. And so that's part of the evolution. You know, you sort of the pendulum sort of swings. And now we're swinging it back to the middle. Um, and I think it's going to work just well. So yeah. if John Records were to reappear on the scene, are you in touch <laughs> with him at all? I am. I, I uh, reach out to John every once in a while. I get his counsel. Uh -huh. I had the good fortune of working with both John Records and Mike Johnson when uh -huh. I was with uh, Catholic Charities. And so I value uh, their guidance. Yeah. I think if John were here today, he would, he would be happy and he would be smiling yes. with the direction that we're headed. Well, I think if he were to show up at the breakfast and see all of the community, how, how many people show up? 800? Usually, usually there's about 400, 400 that show up. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I will say that as part of this, this evolution, I think one of the one constants over the last 31 years have been the people. Mm -hmm. When you think about the people that have supported Cots and Mary Isaac, you know, the staff, for 31 years, all the various board members who served on, served on the board of directors are volunteers, um, are community leaders and donors. Um, at the end of the day, it's not really about a shelter bed or a meal. It really is about the people. And so it's really the people that have been that one constant through some of the changes and really have made cots who they are today. Well, I, yeah. I think actually every experience I've had has been about the people. The even people. Even when we come together as a community on the, after that breakfast, it's about the people. It's not you know, how many statistics and stuff like that. It's about the individuals. And, uh, that really makes a difference. So are, are there any myths about homeless people you would like to help debunk in the community? Because I'm sure you get that uh, where you sit and what you hear from others. Yeah, you get that almost every day. Yes. You know, they're lazy. 
You know, why don't they pull themselves up by the bootstraps? Uh, why are they always drinking? And all this issue with a substance abuse and addiction. My experience is um, people want help. I remember one of our clients saying, Chuck, we're all broken. We just need some help. A recent survey showed that 89% of the people who are experiencing homeless would live in a home if they had the opportunity. Um, they're hardworking. They want to move forward with their life. You know, I think as the ED, the CEO of COTS, my job is to perhaps better educate, raise awareness in the community about, you know, what it's like to be homeless and some of the facts around it. So, so dispel some of the myths. Um, Did you want to share? Is there any of that part of that you want to share right now? Um, what do you mean? Uh, any part of that, some of the myths of the facts that you would like people to know about the homeless that would help people understand more clearly what, um, you know, what, what, what we're dealing with. I think because people are fearful, people are, you know, they're worried about mental illness, they're worried about violence, I, um, all those, those things. I think one of the things um, that I've learned is that homelessness can happen to anyone. There's so many of us that could be one paycheck away. Um, I remember opening a day center in Eureka, California a couple years ago. And I was walking downtown Eureka, which is a pretty rough area with a lot of homeless people. And this one person walks by me and uh, didn't look too good. And so I asked my colleague who I was with, well, who is that? And she told me his name, John. I'll use that name. And I said, tell me about John. John was married. He had a family. He had a job. He had four kids. He was an upstanding citizen in Humboldt County. And one day he got into an accident. Somebody hit his car. And his entire family was killed. And he struggled with that. And he ended up on the streets homeless. And he started to develop some mental health challenges and addiction. Um, every once in a while, he would come into this place to take a shower. And Betty would hear him talk to his wife and his kids. Tell him what he did. When it was his son's birthday, he would walk into Betty's office with a box a gift for his son because it was his birthday. His son was obviously dead, and it was a baseball glove. My son loved to play baseball. And so here you have this outstanding human being married, all the outward appearances of being successful, and this is what happened. So it can happen to any one of us. Right. Yeah. Right. Could you take us through the process of somebody coming to sure. you and wanting help, and sure. you know, what, who do they meet, and what, what happens with them? So when somebody comes to the Mary Isaac Center, they meet with um, a, um, a director. And the, the, the director does what we call an intake or an assessment. What are some of the challenges that you're having? What are some of the barriers to housing? Once they work through that, that person is then assigned a housing navigator or case manager. They then work on some of their challenges, their issues. Um, and the goal is to try to get that person in a house. So they meet with the case manager, meet with, meet, meets with the person um, every week or every other week and helps them move through the process. The stay at the Mary Isaac is not very long. Uh, it's only six months. And so we try to do everything that we can to get that person out of the shelter and into a house or a home. Yeah, it's not easy, you know, <laughs> given the, the lack of affordable housing in Sonoma County, but we, we try. So how, how does that work, actually? Because I, I was thinking about that, that 
housing is not just a topic for the homeless, it's a topic for almost everybody in mm-hmm. terms of cost and the challenge is the limited uh, inventory of low, for low income people. What what's that like? We have we have a housing department that also uh-huh. works with landlords, looks for available apartments so that they can then match the available housing units with our clients at the Mary Isaac Center. And so we try to work on both of those issues. We also have what we call a diversion, diversion specialist who tries to keep people in their homes so they don't end up on the street. Uh, a lot easier to do that than when a person ends up on the street. Then it becomes much more difficult. Uh, well, once they're out of the house and on the street, it's once, much more difficult. Once they're on the streets, there's a, there's a phenomenon called presentism. What that means is that when you are homeless and on the streets, you start to become acclimated to living on the streets. Your psychology adjusts. And so you begin to thrive within homelessness on the streets. And so what we try to do is we try to get them, either prevent them from getting on the streets, or once they're laying on the streets, we try to get them off of the streets as quickly as possible. Because then you just get used to it and you begin to thrive in that environment. Then all the other things that happen when you end up homeless. What are some of those interventions like to keep them in their houses? Uh, We can help with rental assistance. Uh, we can help them with finding a better job. We have staff to do that. We can make sure that they have all the benefits that they're entitled to. And so we help them with all of those, um, perhaps, barriers that can keep them in their home and, and off of the streets. And what's it, what's it like for families and for children? What's it's, that piece it's, of it? It's, it's hard, you know. Um, for children, there's no better predictor of adult troubles than child homelessness. And so to, to the extent that we can help families and children and, and even address the issue before it gets out of hand. I remember walking through a shelter when I first started in this process and showing a young couple their room in the shelter. And the young man said, oh, this is where I stayed as a baby. And so to the extent that we can prevent that, you know, upstream investments, if you will, um, the better off we're going to be. Uh, we've always thought that, you know, we have a family shelter. And where, where's the dignity in a bus coming by to pick up a child to take them to school when the bus pulls up in front, in front of a homeless shelter? What if we had homes in the community where instead we could put families in a duplex or a fourplex in a normal neighborhood? And so there's none of that stigma. And so we've, all, we've often had those conversations. If only we had. If only, if we, only had. we had. Yeah, if yeah. only we had. And so wh- where, are, where is funding coming from to, to do all the work that you do? Yeah, so about 54% of our funding, we're about $7 million budget, comes from either uh, government grants or foundations. Um, about 30% comes from traditional fundraising, the COTS Hour, coming uh-huh. up on November 14th. And the rest comes from uh, various rental income, miscellaneous income. Um, so you go through the annual challenge of uh, where's next year's budget coming from? It's always a struggle with nonprofits. It's it always a struggle. Where's, non- where's our funding coming from and how do we – you never want to either chase a grant – or when you get a grant and you have to hire people, then when the grant runs out, what do you do? Right. 
And so we, we, we try to get ahead of that a little bit and make sure that when that grant, grant runs out that we have other funding sources so we can keep the program moving forward. Yes, I, uh, I uh, always tell this story of going to a major national funder con conference and uh, I raised my hand and I asked the question, um, how, do you, how do nonprofits avoid lying on the last question on your application? Which is, what are you going to do to fund this program after the three-year grant? Is Always up? a question, yeah. right? Yeah. And as far as I know, everybody makes up an answer because not everybody knows where that money's coming from three years from now. Part of that is, cuts is a business, but we have a business with a social service mission. Mm -hmm. So part of that business is to make sure that we quote risk manage a lot of our funding streams. So knowing that this fund is going to run out in a year or two years, we have a really pretty terrific grants department that tries to stay ahead of that to say, okay, this is where we're going to go to pursue funding so that we can always provide these services to those experiencing homelessness. So, you know, we've set up new systems and processes to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, it's not always perfect, right? but again, you know, these are things that we have to do to, to operate appropriately. Right. Yeah. And what's the funding uh, climate like given our world and the politics of our world? Are, are the government funds always a question? Are they being challenged? Uh, where's homelessness on the agenda of our leaders? I think there's always funding out there. Yeah. I, mean, I always hear the, the question of what about funding and what are the challenges? There's funding always out there. What you have to do is just be aware of the funding. You have to do your research and your prospecting. But I think more importantly, you have to be able to show that you are running like a good organization and that you're also having impact. That's what people want to see. And so to the extent that you can do both of those really well, funding's not going to be an issue. People all want to give to well-run, well-led organization. That's what we need to focus on. Yeah. yeah. And um, what are your measures like? What are your success measures? <laughs> How do you know when you're successful? Aside from getting the grant. That's, a, that's one level of success. But I'm talking about in terms of the clients. How do you measure the success with the clients? There's a lot of ways. I think one important way is, have we got them housing? Not only have we got them housing, but how long have they been in the house? Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it 18 months? So have we been able to stabilize them to the point where they're going to be there for a really long time? One of the things we don't want to do is get them housed, and then in six months they sort of lapse and go back onto the streets. And so one very, very important metric is getting them housed and then the length of time that they're housed and that the percent that return to the streets. Obviously, we hope that percent is really low. Right. Yeah. Um, and how has it been? We're in the process of measuring Measure all of that. Right now. Yeah. Okay. Our board did a really good job of creating a strategic plan. Uh -huh. And part of that strategic plan is what are the, quote, key performance indicators so that we can measure our success, whether it's administratively, financially, programmatically with the client's so we've got these huge lists of about 39 metrics that we're starting to measure to make sure that COTS is successful in a lot of different areas. And um, how are you 
getting into the issues of drugs and alcohol and substance abuse, which is, you know, that's a good piece of this. I would, am I correct in assuming that? It's a huge, it's a huge piece of this. You know, a few years ago before Housing First, COTS was a dry shelter, no drugs, no alcohol. Now it's a wet shelter, which is part of what we're required under Housing First. Um, our hope is that we can come to some sort of a middle ground where we can be moved towards more of the dry part of a shelter. I also think that drugs and alcohol is a result of being homeless. It's one way that people cope on the streets. Um, I know I was out in an encampment um, a couple of weeks ago talking with one of the people in the tents. And she said, we do drugs. And it's one way for us to stay awake at night and so that we can guard our area and not, not get attacked. Um, and so it's something that we have to deal with every day. Um, and we use this technique called harm reduction, where we don't say, Rabbi Ted, you're really bad for doing this. We say, um, how can we work with you? Maybe you can think of a, another substance that you could use, maybe do something else. And that just opens the conversation. When you start opening the conversation, you start to build trust. And when you build trust, then you can start to connect with that person. So um, it's always an issue. It's it is an issue. It's a tough issue. You so when you said, uh, you mentioned something that um, moving to a dry, wet shelter yeah. is part of the requirement for housing. Mm-hmm. Whose requirement is housing? I, I don't understand. It's the federal, it's okay. the federal government. So. Uh-huh. You know, a couple of years ago, the state of California said, if, if you're a homeless service provider and you're getting funds, then you've got to, you've got to transition to this model called Housing First. Uh-huh. And one of the premises of Housing First is to remove all of the barriers to entry into a shelter or to a home. Part of that is drugs and alcohol. Mm. And so, therefore, we went from a dry to a wet shelter. And so our hope is to sort of perhaps reinterpret that to the benefit of the shelter and the clients. And what that looks like, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of our budget is we get money from the federal and state government, so we need to you know, comply, comply with that. Yeah. Now, if I had a rich uncle somewhere that was going to leave me $100 million, there you go. then I think we're going to be okay. Okay, if there are any rich uncles out there in the, <laughs> among the listeners, give Chuck Fernandez a call at Cots. He'd, he'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, because it, it, it would seem to me that uh, that would then uh, pre- present a, a burden, a challenge, whatever word you want to put in there, mm-hmm. to the staffing at the shelter and to the program pieces of the shelter to have to deal with people who are uh, using these uh, substances at that point. I think we're fortunate because the staff that we have at COTS is really pretty remarkable. Uh-huh. Extremely compassionate, extremely caring, really fight and advocate for their clients. Um, and so we've been blessed. And, you know, although they don't deal with our clients, our board of directors are, are equally as caring. You know, I'm just I'm amazed at some of the comments and conversations that I've had. Um, and so really, we're fortunate and we're, we're lucky. I'm, I'm grateful. So, um, one of the pieces that I've heard uh, the changes that has been evolving over these years has been how food is handled. Mm-hmm. 
And could you say where you are at this point? With uh, they used to, I know some homeless people who used to go there for lunches and just yeah, what's going on with that? Right now, we prepare over seventy three hundred meals a month, uh-huh. and so thanks to a donor, uh, we've been able to open lunch and dinner to the community. Anybody who's hungry, uh-huh. you can walk off the streets, come into Mary Isaac, and get a hot, nutritious meal. Um, so, breakfast is a protein breakfast. Um, lunch is the same. Dinner is the same. Thanks to our donors, such as Trader Joe's um, and other organizations in the community, we get all this fresh fruit, organic vegetables, everything. That's what we use to prepare our meals. So, we don't believe in canned foods. Everything is fresh, and if possible, which is quite often, it's organic. Again, thank you to Trader Joe's and our community partners. So food is really a big thing. It's, it's going to help in their healing process. Okay, so, but where, was there a point where you weren't doing that? And you, then you yeah, we just started that this, just restarted. Just started ah, that okay. this summer where right. we opened Mary Isaac to, for lunch and then for dinner. Okay. So this is something relatively new thanks to, um, thanks to a generous donor. That, yeah, well, that makes a difference. Yeah. That, that, that does make a difference. Yeah. Uh, because I've known uh, when the program stopped, I, again, I lost track of time a year and a half, two years ago. Well, you know, what happened? Why can't we go there? Yeah. What, they've changed it. We, they, they're forgetting about us. So it's part of the evolution. It's part right. of the evolution. Yeah. It's part of the evolution. Um, so, what, you know, so the, there's the work that you do, mm-hmm. and then. We also read almost uh, uh, consistently in the papers about the police dealing with the encampments, uh, particularly I mean, here in Petaluma, of course, but also up in Santa Rosa. Sure. sure. <coughs> Are you working with them in any way in all this? What's I am. I'll be on the Joe Redota Trail tomorrow morning at 8.30 uh-huh. with some of our staff to be able to lend a hand. Uh, we also partner closely with the other homeless providers in Santa Rosa. I mean, homelessness is not a jurisdictional issue. It's a county issue. And so I think to the extent that we can all work together, we're all in this together, um, I think it's it's only going to help. So, yeah, we partner together. And, again, I was in an encampment uh, close by here a couple weeks ago. And so I try to get out, um, you know, where the work is. Yeah. Yeah. What do you hear from the people there? Do you get a chance to talk to them and... They want help. They yeah. want a home. You know, again, the survey, recent survey, so 89% of the people uh, would rather be in a home than outside on yeah. the streets or in an encampment. And so they want help. Yeah. 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 And your very quick uh, answer to the question of, well, let them get jobs. And uh, why can't they pick themselves up from there with their bootstraps and and uh, work and all that. They just need a helping hand. Yeah. That's all they need is a, is a helping hand. They need somebody um, to believe in them. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the quotes, I carry a quote around in my wallet for the past 20 years, and what the quote says is, um, be kinder than necessary because everybody you meet is fighting some kind of battle. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that we can extend that kindness and compassion, and I need to read that every day, trust me, right. um, it only helps people. Yeah. You know, so when you come across a person experiencing homeless, say hi. Uh-huh. You know, 
Um, don't walk across the other side of the street because you're trying to avoid them. You know, that hello, that warmth that they get from you could probably make all the difference in the world. Yeah. yeah. yeah so this is a, a, it's an emotional topic as it well is. as a spiritual topic. It as is. As well as a logistical and financial and all the things in life. So Chuck Fernandez, I want to thank you for being with us in our studio today and continue on your wonderful mission for Cox. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. LP, Petaluma, California.